वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक टॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द गार्डन एंड द जंगल विल थिंक अबाउट सॉइल प्लांट्स एनिमल्स बर्ड्स वर्म्स फ्रूट्स फ्लावर्स इंसेक्ट्स एंड मोर एंड इफ अ गार्डन इज इंट्रेंसिकली डिफरेंट फ्रॉम अ जंगल वॉट इज द हिस्ट्री ऑफ कलेक्टिंग क्लासीफाइंग एंड टेमिंग नेचर How do seasonal and cyclic natural phenomena express themselves? What makes rewilding the degraded possible? How can cities be planted? What is the relationship between climatic changes and biology? What selective forces make gardens possible? When do jungles take over? What is the future of the cult of the picturesque? and is the long term future of jungles gardens we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today pradeep krishnan he calls himself an ecological gardener he works to try and restore degraded habitats is based in new delhi professor mahesh rangarajan is a professor of history and environmental studies at ashoka university in sonipat he is an environmental historian and an author and professor uma shankar was a professor of crop physiology at uas in bangalore So Mahesh why don't we set the ball rolling with you um maybe by rolling the clock backwards to understand what the history of the conception of the wilderness is do we as we conceive of the wild as we conceive of the jungle as we conceive of the forest that has that changed in any way that might be material or significant from an understanding standpoint well, certainly the ideas have changed over time the term jungle for example was used in the 18th century to refer to farmland or cultivated land which mm-hmm. had lapsed into the original state so right. jungle refers actually to abandoned farmland it doesn't refer to all uncultivated which has rewilded itself almost in a way they would not have used that term they would have seen uh, uh, wild as a negative rather right. than as a positive as we might today mm. the other of course is that there is an assumption in the way we frame these terms garden and jungle that the mm-hmm. jungle is natural and that the garden is human made but we must keep in mind that humans have been present in lot of landscapes across the earth now for 50 to 70000 years right so much of the area which we think of as forest also has felt the impress of the human presence in india if you go through lot of forest areas you may come across a clump of mango trees or peepal trees in the jungle with, in the jungle or the forest the so called jungle abandoned uh, homesteads mm. uh, these may have been abandoned because of high revenue demand or disease the reverse the garden after all incorporates not only plants which are not native it may include certain native plants right so the dividing line between the human and nature uh, may not be so sharp in the past and uh, when you use the term wilderness mm-hmm. what do we mean by it see in the ramayana of valmiki i'm using a literary source we to use it very cautiously sure uh, rama describes the wilderness as a plain of 
place of hardship and pain. It's a place where there are man-eating lions who emerge to roar from the caves, where there are enormous buffaloes with big horns right. and elephants uh, which run must. And there is sharp kusa grass which will uh, poke the souls of his wife Sita. He's trying to persuade her not to go to the wilderness. Right. Sita argues wilderness is a beautiful place. It's a place where there are doors. There are ponds which are fringed with lotuses <laughs> where the peacocks dance. This is before the one was. Just before. And she says the wilderness for me is not a place of pain. It is a place of beauty as long as you are with me. So I think there are different conceptions of wilderness. Oh. Today, the conception we use derives to some extent from American ideas of the wilderness as a place where humans are absent. But humans have never been absent. They have been present in a different form. Their impress may have been much less than today. Sure, sure, sure. And when, when one uses the term garden, is it almost always in the context of trying to conceive of it along with non-native forms of life? No, the garden is an area which has been sculpted for particular kinds of human use. Gardens oh. also have different uses. Dawud oh. Ali has done very interesting work using uh, Sanskrit sources and Farsi sources on garden. So this Dawud Ali? Dawud Ali is a scholar. Sure. And uh, he shows, you see, the garden, for example, could be a place where place was staged. Sort of Kalidasa's place are staged in the garden. The garden may also be a place which includes animals. So, for example, if you look at a very famous enclosed space, Sikandra, uh -huh. where the tomb of Akbar is, it has a very famous herd of black buck. The black buck are also intrinsic part of the garden. Uh -huh. So, there are different kinds of gardens. Uh -huh. The Vatika, just as there are different kinds of forest, the Vana or the Jangala. Uh -huh. So, there are different kinds and grades. Each of these is a generic term to describe a variety of landscapes. What are different kinds of forests, Mahesh? To give you an instance, you know, we are meeting in Mumbai and right. uh, very close to where we are, there are mangroves. Right. It's a very remarkable plant which grows at the edge of the sea and the stable land formation. Right. The city I have come from, Delhi, has a lot of scrub forest, which is open. Right. If you were to go into areas with heavier rain, it would have uh, much larger trees, it would be more lush and greener. Rain so there forest, are different so. kinds of forests. So mangrove, scrub forest, uh, let us say wet evergreen or rainforest, just to name three. Sure. So, there are different kinds of forest. Forest is a generic category, as is garden and jungle. So, the diversity each of the terms uh, uh, encapsulates must be kept in mind by us. Mm, 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 mm. Interesting. And Pradeep, in, in when what makes rewilding possible? And, and in what sense have you come to think of the term natural habitat? In what sense do we couple the ideas and notion of geography, very particular local geography, very particular soil conditions and so on with... Uh... You know, when you're working in a stressed environment, such as, uh, for example, the rocky volcanic um, hills of Jodhpur, which is where I have been working for the last 11 years, mm. um, when I was first shown this tract of land and I was told, you know, can you green this for us? the trust that manages the Mehrangar Fort in Jodhpur said, can you green this for us? Right. And I imagined, I think quite accurately, that what they had in their minds was a, a garden with, you know, flowering trees and, right. and things. And I said, look, you know, at that point, the, the entire tract of land was overrun with an invasive uh, American plant called Prosopis juliflora, you know, mm -hmm. the mesquite. And uh, one of the Maharajas in the 1930s had gone up in an airplane and had been told that, you know, if you scatter the seeds of this Central American um, plant, 
it will green the whole of your desert kingdom. And he went up, he was an airplane enthusiast. Right. When was this? 1932, I think it was. <laughs> and he went up with bags full of Prosopis juliflora seeds and he scattered it throughout the kingdom of Jodhpur. So this tract of land, it's, you know, it's up on a, on a, a rocky outcrop in Jodhpur next to the Menangar Fort. It was absolutely choked with this tree. So when I was shown this tract of land and I was asked whether I could green it for them, I said, look, you know, the only way that that's practical mm-hmm. is to try and restore it to its natural, you know, what it, what you might have expected it to have been like if it was a relatively undisturbed place. And I was told, I was asked, how would you go about doing this? Because there's no evidence, there's no information available about what this place might have been like. And I said, well, there are other places in the desert. If we search out rocky outcrops in the desert, we look for other volcanic places, we will be able to get a sense of what other plants occupy a habitat like this. So we may not accurately be able to duplicate exactly what this area was like, but our best chance of being able to do this without importing literally millions of tons of soil and then watering these plants on a regular basis is to try and rewild it. So that's what we did. We, we, we literally first had to tackle the problem of how to get rid of the inv- invasive plant. And then we brought in plants. How did you get rid of it? Well, it was very interesting because these are very deep-rooted plants. Right. And uh, taking out Prosopis juliflora in, in soil, in deep soil, is not that hard. Or if you have mechanical means, JCBs. What was the core argument for getting this in in the first place? Was was it substantive or did it deserve, did it have any merit whatsoever or it was just a quirky thing that ended up happening? See, this plant first came in in the, in the 1880s. Mm. Uh, the first record in India is some seed that came from Kew Gardens. They don't quite know where these seeds came from. Sure. But it was foresters, It's and it's typically it's foresters who have to deal with you know, degraded places where it's difficult to reforest an area. Right. And you suddenly have this plant that ha- that comes in with a reputation of being very hardy, right. of not requiring any water, not requiring any nutrients, of growing very quickly by themselves. And the trouble with this plant is that it's also allelopathic, which means that in its root zone, mm-hmm. it, it secretes an alkaloid that doesn't allow other plants to grow close to it. So it's very successful. Right. And it outcompetes everything else. Right. So the, the, I think what was probably told to Maharaja at that time was that, you know, you've got an arid desert kingdom. Don't you want it to be nice and green? And don't you want to have it full of trees? And he was seduced by the idea. The appeal and was visual. and was visual, but it was also an idea that, you know, this, my barren Marubhumi, you know, will become a, you <laughs> know, a, a treed a landscape. He, of course, had no means of knowing that it would, A, become invasive, B, that it would outcompete other things. And, you know, th- there is no doubt that Prosopis juliflora ha- does have some real attractions. It, it does provide fuel wood for, to poor people who live, you know, uh, close to the edge of poverty. Uh, it probably also provides um, cover and habitat to small mammals, small creatures. But in some situations, it's a real nuisance. And and where where would you come on this, Uma? Is there is there a way in which you would um, s- call some plants local plants in a sense which is rigorous? So you know we 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 just discussed this specific instance and call it an American plant, and of course, in there's nothing wrong with the word American. Uh, but is there a way in which floral or faunal varieties, for that matter, are highly local to very 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 local conditions? 
Yeah, for when example, do things adapt and when they don't? When do they carry well? When do they don't carry well? Yeah. When is rewilding possible and when it's not? Those are essentially the questions we're trying to ask. Sure. Now, just to take on from this prosopis. Now, mm. he mentioned it's a Central American uh, uh, species mm. that was brought into India through the queue, through the British, uh, and so on and so forth. Right. Now, that it has established so well in uh, many parts of Rajasthan and other parts of the country perhaps speaks of its uh, what we call as the ecological niche of this species. Right. Now, every species on earth has a certain ecological niche in which it does the best in terms of, let us say, leaving behind the most number of seeds. In this case, let's call it a fecundity. Now, many, many plants... Uh, have located themselves in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But then thanks to human sort of shipments of these plants from their native uh, sort of sites in South America, we know that many, many uh, parts of the world other than South America also may have similar niche for these species. So once they're brought out of that, you can actually rewild a totally alien habitat which is so-called alien for this species just because it's coming from South America. But once it's located here, if that habitat happens to be something that mimics its original habitat, right. it sort of gets adapted. And so you have a situation like what Prosopis uh, has, Lantana camera has, Parthenium has, Eupitorium has, and so on and so forth. Right. And these become what we today call as the invasive sort of invasive alien to be more specific. Uh, species. Now, these could, uh, say, take on a huge number of other native species just because they probably are doing much better than the native species themselves are doing. Right. And physiologically, why is it that some plants are hardy and some not? Why is it that some plants adapt better than some don't? It's a, is it a simple case of um, largely mimicking the niche that it occupied elsewhere in South Central America or whatever? Uh, there or, are, or there's something intrinsic about certain species? Okay, uh, this is a very interesting question. Mm. Not all of the uh, sort of alien species actually go on to become invasive. Right. Only a small proportion of them. Right. And studies have shown that there may be one too many reasons that uh, might spell the success of these species. Mm -hmm. A, and there's a very uh, nice hypothesis, mm -hmm. and that hypothesis says that these native, these species which are the alien invasives here, back home, they were put in check due to their own natural predators and herbivores. But once freed from those uh, native habitats of those species, let's say right. Antana camera in South America or Prosopus in Central America, when they come here, they're free of their native burden of uh, pestilence. And so they run right here. So they're free of pests, they're free of cattle or whatever, whatever other forms whatever. of animals who may... Which, yeah. which was keeping them in check. And competition. And competition right. from right. other conspecific or congeneric species of plants that they used to know be uh, living with. Second is, uh, uh, this theory is borrowed from the theory of uh, virulence in viruses. Mm -hmm. Now, some of these species are hyper... Uh, mutable species in the sense they now generate enormous amount of recombinational genetic variation Right, that gives them a huge amount of arsenal to adapt to widely heterogeneous uh, habitats. And uh, this has been shown in a couple of invasive species that actually they sort of throw up lots of spontaneous, the rates of spontaneous mutation in these species are very, very high. And so that can lead them to now gain adaptation to totally alien habitats different from what they were coming from.
ஒரு <laughs> is a product of you know the bolivians and other peoples of latin america right recently there is a very interesting book i differ with it but i want to emphasize still that its argument is still important called sure. exotic aliens in india mm-hmm. written by three scholars one of whom is a very great historian professor romila tapar mm-hmm. it's on the lion and cheetah in india mm-hmm. put in a nutshell it says the lion was introduced by the greeks mm-hmm. there is the biological lion they were brought by greeks and they went uh, wild and chita by the various mughals and turkish rulers this is unlikely because uh, lion and chita are part of a certain zone you know which includes the drongo the bulbul the acacia tree the rattle uh, the honey badger and this zone extends from africa through asia into india so western india is very similar to much of west asia and so africa when you say zone you mean an ecological zone by a biogeographic so it's zone. unlikely that they were introduced mm. so with animals there are very few wild animals which have been brought from outside of india which have got acclimatized so invasive aliens as plants are simpler than invasive aliens as animals is that in this particular case in mm-hmm. the old world that is mm-hmm. eurasia there are very few animal populations that have gone established so if you look at india there are a few red deer Uh, in some of parts of himachal right there are elephants in a place called interview island in andamans they ran away they crossed <laughs> the sea and ran away and they will attack you if you go there interview island so there are very few animals but with plants it's very interesting not only are there plants from outside india mm-hmm. pradeep saab's book also shows a tree like neem is mm. been naturalized in many areas where it was not found mm. banyan people another tree whose origins are uh, uh, questionable uh, tamarind Mm. So while the prosopis is an interesting case it is only 150 years old in terms of presence there are other trees and plants which have been naturalized but so uh, when so is, is it naturalized an, and mm. when is it an invasive is something we will need to debate it's an interesting question so is prosopis an aberration pradeep or could 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 there have been other cases or have there been other cases of alien species alien within quotes which have gone on to adapt well as opposed to being invasive or domineering on the geography they end up entering for example something like the tamarind mm. which is thought to be african in origin mm. um even though the the name tamarind comes from tamare hind which means the the indian date right. the, uh, the arabic word indian for it date. was indian date it's thought to come from east africa but the tamarind has never been invasive so we never brand it as an as an invasive it even though it actually may be a tree that actually has adapted and naturalized really well and you tend to see it only where you have evidence of old habitation of settlements human settlements because it's planted in these areas and it doesn't sort of invade in that sense right but as a you know there are very few trees that um are actually behaving as badly as prosopis at the moment there are some australian wattles which Wattles. which mm. especially which are acacias which especially in the uh, lower hills up to about 6000 feet mm-hmm. 
are being planted by the forest department and are beginning to behave invasively. There, are, there is a new, there's a new invasive kid on the block, and that's a tree we call the subabul, which was actually introduced by the World <laughs> Bank, by the World Bank, as an agroforestry tree, because it grows very quickly. It uh, flowers and fruits twice a year. It's very fecund, and it seems to be tolerant of a wide range of conditions. But and um, also provides firewood or something. Well, the theory was that it would provide both firewood uh, as well as forage. Right. But they discovered a little too late, and I find this unforgivable, that the leaves are actually toxic to, to <laughs> most foraging animals, you know, which makes it, which reduces its use yeah. to half. At so least, has the damage know. been done already? The damage has been done, you know, at the moment on the Central Ridge, for example, in Delhi, which is an area I know really well. Right. Uh, it's already behaving, it's out of control, Oops. you know. Mm. And we don't have a an agency that is sufficiently interested or knowledgeable about the Central Ridge to, to, to actually do anything about it. Oh. And it's now spreading everywhere, I see. I mean, when I go traveling or driving, I see Subabul just galloping along at an alarming rate. Oh. So, oh. Uh, oh. yes, there are, you know, there are trees like this that are now beginning to... So it's, it's alarming. It's really so it's which, quite alarming. Which, which takes me back to the earlier question, which we didn't fully tail on. So how did you take out the prosopis? Have you taken it out? Have you tolerated it to some limit? No. Uh, we, what have you done? We knew that we had to eradicate it completely and mm. make sure that so it... So how do you eradicate a plant species? Well, it's species? actually quite an interesting story because when we first started, uh, we started asking around locally whether there was any local knowledge about how to get rid of prosopis. And we got some pretty cockeyed idea. Somebody said, Savis, go cut it, you know, on the new moon and put a, some fresh gober on it. We knew that this was not going to work. But <laughs> we tried it anyway. We said, let's, you know, let's give it half a chance. Uh, we were told, we were told, uh, you know, why don't you use dynamite? Wow. And when we, when they saw our expressions, they said, no, no, not, we don't mean some massive, you know, doses of dynamite. We mean, we mean a really small charge, maybe one hundredth of the normal dose. To blow the roots up. Because, you, you know, what we discovered was you have to go down a minimum of 30 inches to get below the budding zone of the roots. If, right. you, cut, if, you, if you remove it from anywhere above that, right. it'll rebud. The stump comes yeah, back. Yeah, it'll coppice and it'll come back. So in a very, very hard volcanic rhyolitic rock, it would have been very hard to actually dig them out. And, we, you know, this is very rough terrain. There's no question of right. taking JCBs or any kind of mechanical, <laughs> you know, uh, right. drills or things. We finally came across um, a group of um, traditional miners there. And somebody said, why don't you try them? Mm -hmm. And we said, um, we're willing to try them. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so we, there's a man called Dhan Singh, who was the head of the Khandwalia community there. And we said, Dhan Singh, isko aap nikal sakte kya? And we showed him a sure. kind of four foot high shrub. Sure. And he uh, said, haan saab nikal sakte hai. And he, they use these extremely heavy hammers. How tall are these trees? No, so the, depending on, you know, at the base where there's a little bit of soil in these hills, mm -hmm. these trees can grow up to about 25, 30 feet. I mean, on the How ridge, they will they grow go? to 40, 50 feet. Again, it depends on what's available to them. You know, so sometimes if it's very, very dense rock, they won't, they can't go very deep. Sure. But our object was to go down a minimum of 30 inches. 30 inches. You know, two and a half feet. So Dhan Singh was told that, can you go down to 30 inches? And he says, haa, saab, kar sakte hain. So he went down on his uh, hands and knees and they used these extremely heavy hammers and he tapped the rock at a few places and then he averted his face 
put his face to one side, and we thought he was going to, you know, strike the, the rock, but was preventing, you know, any shards of rock from going into his eyes. But actually what he was doing was he, he struck the rock three or four times, and he was actually listening to the sound that his hammer made on the rock. And from the sound, he could tell exactly how it was interbedded, where there might right. be a bit of, you know, right. pull up and... And that gave him all the information that he needed in order to go down into the rock. And it was a very, very skillful job. Right. And we knew that, you know, in the next two or three hours when he'd excavated most of the roots, we found he was taking out roots which were two-dimensional. They were like ribbons. Mm. And part of the arsenal, part of the success of these trees was that they were able to snake into very, very linear cracks and crevices in the rock. Right. And he showed us uh, in no uncertain terms that this was the only thing that was going to work without using toxic chemicals to get Have rid of this. Have you tamed them now? Are they gone? Who, the, the, the Khandwalias? Oh, they work. No, 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 oh, no. The, the, <laughs> tamed who the roots? Tamed <laughs> the, the trees? The roots, the trees, yeah. We've got rid of them, yeah. Every, so you, every single so your, one. your eradication uh, attempts have been successful. eradicated them. But we did another interesting thing. We assumed that the, they call it Bavlia in Marwari. The Bavlia means the mad tree. The, sure. the only tree that is so mad that, that it can actually back. grow. Hmm? They will strike back. No, we, what we, did, we decided that the Bavlia had done the research mm. in this tract. It, our, our tract of land is about 70 hectares sure. in extent. Quite extensive. Sure. But very difficult land. Not plant-friendly land at all. And we decided that Bavlia had done the research and found all the places where it was possible for a plant to grow. Right. And so wherever we took the Bavlia out, that became a place where a new plant was going to go in. Right. And the problem we faced was that we didn't have enough ecological information about the new plants we were putting in. We didn't know what they needed. Right. So the big project for the first three or four years was trying to understand what plants would succeed and where and in what kind of but were sites. They, but were they all native? They were all native, absolutely native. They were all collected from rocky parts of the Thar Desert, essentially in Jaisalmer, Bikaner, Jodhpur districts, right. a little bit in Nagaur district, but yeah, they were all from uh, mostly mostly uh, volcanic areas, but some sandstone areas, and we find that most plants don't distinguish too much between the two kinds of rock. And Uma, does this native... Uh natural question which in a way uh, Mahesh also raised in a different yeah. kind of way does it remain significant or important in, in, after a few cycles actually um, yeah uh, uh, before I yeah, raise that question I just want to uh, slightly disagree with what Pradeep please. just now mentioned about eradicating prosopis right now if he has eradicated prosopis I believe he must have eradicated prosopis in a small area uh, perhaps I don't know, a few square so kilometers. So this, this tract is 70 hectares. 70 yeah, hectares. 70 hectares, <laughs> which is possible. Uh, and of course, you have done that. But when you really ask the question of whether one has been able to eradicate, for the matter, any invasive species anywhere in the world, the simple answer is no. Why? Why? There are two reasons. A, by the time one realizes that this invasive species has become invasive in its non-native range, it's almost too late in the day because this has nearly swamped most of the native landscape. I'll give an example. Mm -hmm. Now, we have been working on an invasive species called Lantana camera. Mm -hmm. This is a South American species, which we call weed. Now it's a weed. It's a it's well. A, we call it a weed simply because it's not. It's uh, a grassy desirable. kind of. No, no. It's a shrubby. It's a shrubby kind shrubby of shrubby okay. uh, plant. Also takes up uh, you know 
quite a big, uh, tall height sure. if it's untended and all this stuff. So this plant was introduced by the British mm-hmm. sometime in the 1800s mm-hmm. uh, from South America mm-hmm. as an ornamental species of plant. Mm-hmm. And it was first brought into Calcutta, the then uh, National Botanical Gardens or Imperial Botanical Gardens. Sure. And interestingly, what happened one of my colleagues showed that once it was introduced into uh, Calcutta, uh, within about uh, 20, 30 years, it spread to all the British cantonment then existing, uh, simply because the British took it to those different cantonments in the country, again as an ornamental. (laughs) After 50 years or so, people now found that this has escaped the cantonments and gone into the sort of wilderness in terms of agricultural land, it's forest land. It's its way through because it's, absolutely. it's visually remarkable. It must be good absolutely. to look at. Mm. So we have been working on this uh, species of plant in a certain site in southern India, mm-hmm. in a field site, a forest site. Mm-hmm. And I have been personally witnessing this from 1991 up to now mm-hmm. that in 1991, I could have walked through the forest uh, without seeing much of this plant. But over the last uh, 25 years now, this forest is completely inundated with this species of plant. Right. It's so thick that you just can't go through it. Animals can't go through it. Elephants can't go through it. It's a thicket of absolutely shrubby wall, I should use that word. So, so what does it need to survive? Is it... Is it uh, how large can this niche grow? Um, like if you run this over the next two, three, four hundred thousand years. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so okay, let's I, me. I'll let, let you come to it. Yeah, yeah. Let me address that question. Uh, first of all, why not this one? So when it comes to eradicating this, it becomes so difficult of eradicating something that has really taken root, so to say, through hundreds and hundreds of square kilometers. A. Sure. B. Even if one were to do it. It's enormously costly, financially unfeasible. Uh, leave apart the sort of practical effort it would now take. Right. So that is where all efforts to now eradicate these sort of invasive species have fallen off, not just in India, in North America, in all of the parts of the world, especially in Australia, because Australia, in fact, is a huge continent by itself where all of these invasive species are really run amok. It's some kind of a pest species almost. It Well, we call it a pest now right. uh, because it usurps the native uh, sort of flora. Sure, sure, sure. There are plenty of invasives that are not pests. Especially herbaceous. Absolutely. Mm. So not all invasives become pests. And so that's the reason why I told that what is the reason certain aliens, uh, certain invasive species become or go on to become what he mentioned as a pestilence or a really... But Uma, if, 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 if yeah. you were the custom officer or whatever and you got to decide what to let in and what to keep out, is there any way for you to say as, this, as a person who knows the biology, genetics, crop physiology of right. a lot of these things? Right. Or prior eye, ahead of time to say that, don't let this in. Right. Very good question. And uh, it's, uh, the answer lies in the theory of ecological niche modeling. Mm-hmm. Now, we today understand, uh, I would say, a fair deal of what we call as the ecological niche or fundamental niche of a species. Every species on Earth has a certain fundamental niche. For example, let's take the case of camel. Right. Uh, which is a, one of the most easiest to sort of spell out. The fundamental niche of a camel is the desert. Yes. Now, if I knew that uh, there's a, this camel species, let's say, uh, hypothetically in Africa, 
And I want to now introduce this animal into India. As a quarantine officer, I'll ask myself, what are the ecological niche of this animal that resembles the ecological niche of its native sort of habitat? Are they available in India? If they were available in India, would I allow it or not? I can yeah, now do a prescription I think there. One, is to, one is to try and assess whether they would survive, and this it's the survivability question. The yes. other is this virulence question of where you worry whether it might go in and be an invasive species as, as we've been discussing. So is there any way of predicting with some accuracy whether... We could predict with a certain degree of accuracy whether or not, given the sort of climatic variables that are prevailing, let's say, in India, a given species from outside can come and adapt uh, snugly and also be fit in terms of the Darwinian fitness in this sort of habitat. Right. To right. that extent, theory allows us to do but are there genetic markers to, uh, of this kind? Of course, it's too, it's no, too general or broad a proposition. I understand that. Yeah. Genetic markers would not, uh, I would say it's just a very narrow focus. It doesn't uh, really lend us because there's something else. You have a lot of plasticity in many of the species. And this plasticity is governed by the environment in which you put the plant into. So finally, the... Uh, adaptive success of a plant is not just the genetic, but is the interaction of the genes and the environment that you put into. So unless that is done empirically, you will never know whether the species is going to be adaptable to a uh, given area or not. Let me give a very quick example. Please. The British uh, brought in rubber from Brazil. Right. And uh, planted it all over the country. Right. But finally... It was successful only in two or three parts of this. Uh, Kerala and a few other places. Yeah. Mm. And these are the places that really mirrored the rainforest uh, sort of climatic variables that the Brazilian uh, uh, climate had. So it clearly can't survive in a Deccan plateau, which is unlike what it was uh, in Brazil. Right. So you have a sort of purpose, a sort of match made between the niche that was available for Brazilian rubber there and what, it, what was available in the country. Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I understand. Yes, Mahesh. We can uh, put it in a larger global context. Mm. There are a lot of island ecologies mm -hmm. which have been profoundly transformed mm -hmm. by introduction of species. Mm -hmm. So the Andamans, for example, the coming of uh, modern humans, not the Andamanis, but over the last 200 years, lot of animals and plants have been introduced to Andamans. So Chital were introduced to provide hunting. The number of Chital are very large. They have changed the plant physiology and the floral structure. Right. Much more famously, look at Australia. Two very interesting animals. One of them is the dingo. The dingo, dingo is a dog. It is a wild dog. It does not bark. It uh, Genetic studies show it probably originates somewhere from the Indonesian islands or the mainland. Some people say the Indian wolf, unlikely. This is brought by the aboriginals thousands of years ago. Sure. Now, the dingo spreads across the Australian mainland. Sure. And it may have been one of the reasons that a very unusual marsupial uh, canid, marsupial equivalent of a canid called the thilakin, the, tas the tiger, disappeared. It's now found only in Tasmania. It may even be extinct. It has not been nearly 70, 80 years. It used to walk like a wolf and jump like a kangaroo. So the dingo <laughs> is brought in and the dingo is in some danger today. Sure. But the dingo actually becomes the major predator of large parts of the Australian outback. 
But look at a more recent instance. One of the things the British do, and I'm fascinated, both my distinguished colleagues have referred to them, in many of the places they went to, they brought animals which they felt would improve the landscape. So in Australia and New Zealand, they brought starlings. In America, the starlings New York is famous for are not American at all. They were brought from Europe. Right. There was actually one American, one Englishman, to be correct, who brought all the various birds referred to in the plays of Shakespeare so that the new country, America, would remind him of the old country, England. <laughs> and obviously, the animal they brought, which was very important in British cuisine, is rabbit. You may remember from Enid Blitton books that, you know, rabbit pie is eaten yeah. by the gypsies. So they brought rabbits to Australia. And rabbits have played havoc with the ecology of Australia. They breed incredibly fast. Yeah. They have eliminated a lot of the marsupial uh, rival uh, herbivores, not by eating them, but by literally eating them out of house and home. Right. Right. So the Australians spent a lot of money and built a rabbit-proof fence. At the end, they found that the rabbits could get under the fence or through it or over it. So I think this issue is a very difficult one. But I want to pose a more serious question. See, humans probably entered the South Asia around 60-70,000 years ago. Mm. We have had a huge impact on its ecology. Not mm. uniformly, not over the 60,000 years. Certainly over the last 3,000 or 10,000 years and definitely over the last 200 years. Are right. we an invasive species? It's yeah. a very serious question to pose yeah. because we are applying this to others. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. I don't have an easy answer. But I think one thing is very clear. In the last few hundred years... How would you answer that? I think we have to take the here and now as we are. Uh, we are products are we, of a history. Are we an invasive species? Initially, no. I think the initial... Are we as virulent of, and if we try to be objective and it's not easy, but... You know, over the last hundred years, we have acquired the capacity to annihilate a lot of life on Earth mm. through uh, nuclear radiation. We have developed certain uh, long-term uh, chemical compounds which significantly affect the reproduction of other species. We also have the ability to transform possibly the Earth's atmosphere for much worse. So we have an ability to transform our landscape, not matched by any other species or not. All of us don't have it equally. We have not had it through history. But certainly in the recent past, we have much more destructive capability. One. But the reverse. Most of the insights we are dis uh, debating today have come due to the knowledge of either knowledge accumulated over centuries or scientific discovery. So we also have knowledge. We have the foreknowledge to minimize our ecological footprint. So I think this debate on invasive is still important. Sure. Is there a difference between non-native, that is originating from elsewhere, sure. and invasive? The non-native takes up some space, but right. doesn't annex right. and capture all of it. Sure. That should be the model for humans also. We take sure. up a lot of space, Correct. Sure. but we shouldn't annex and conquer all of it. Sure. Today, we are surely at a stage of development in a country such as India to have space where people can live reasonably, equitably, sustainably, but allow living space for other species and ecological systems. So what I began with, the diversity. The diversity to be genuine must include not only the alien, some of the invasives. It should include the diversity of native species. We have some 20, 21 mammals not found anywhere else. Mm. If you look at amphibians, if you look at plants, the endemism is much higher. There are a mm. lot of animals and plants we take for granted, right. found nowhere else on earth. Mm. If they're not going to survive here, they won't be anywhere. Mm. So if there are no mm. great Indian bustards in India, they won't be any anywhere. Just mm. to give an example. Mm. And I'm sure we can sure. multiply this with, uh, you know, some 25,000 flowering plants. There must be a huge number which is endemic. So, the protection of these endemics is as much a part of our task in terms of responsibility sure. as protecting, let us say, an ancient library or a monument. 
and, they are, and it's yeah. a living laboratory we are living in we are living inside a huge genetic library you don't burn parts of it you can live in it without burning it yeah <laughs> i mean it extremely seriously see the forest where the lantana has grown has so many other species incidentally this kubabul as it was called till 81 was renamed subabul by mrs at the instance of shrimati indira gandhi who visited the uruli kanchan cooperative and they sang all these praises that it will give fodder it will give firewood and because ku in hindi often means is, bad is, yeah it's bad and so means good, good they named it subabul so major <laughs> political intervention and government went completely crazy thinking about it and right. this is a good instance the intention was positive yeah but they didn't think about the consequences yeah. so we must think about longer term consequences so one is allowing space for other species and diversity other is thinking a little about longer term consequences there may be consequences beyond the lifetime of an individual i think the question mahesh is is it possible to think of long term consequences because uh, you know when you start off surely a lot of these experiments may have been started off as benign interventions with good intentions and they may have right. gone along okay and if if uh, I I think that's the question I mean it's maybe cannot maybe it cannot you know, be answered a lot of these benign interventions may have gone along okay and then you know you have one or two species which end up becoming virulent and they go in a different direction but the question I want to ask you Mahesh is that if we think of it using a historical lens and if we keep agriculture aside for a minute which is also some kind of a very very deep impact that we have on all all kinds of crops and plants around us in what what kind of selective forces are at work because it's us as human beings are we essentially ending up choosing visually remarkable spectacular picturesque species is is something of that nature at work in in a, in a manner that might be beyond the trivial i think that, that that's that's the question so the forests of a thousand years ago or the jungles of a thousand years ago the gardens or the general the general plant ecosystem around us is that is it tending towards things that appeal to the human eye no that it would but you know let me take refuge behind history mm. one part of tamil nadu had what are known as the nayaka rulers they are not very well known they never established big kingdoms <laughs> but lot of the nayakas like a lot of southern indian rulers uh, laid avenues look at the trees they chose along the avenue some of them are alive even now they are being destroyed in the road widening of today these are largely shade giving trees they are long lived trees they are slow growing trees and i would say if you look at lot of the road construction in the second world war you know second world war australian american troops are in india mm. some of them are uh, very close to nalanda famous old sure. buddhist university bihar sharif you go to patna to bihar sharif even now if you see the road it has got shisham trees Right. very beautiful tall trees they planted it for shade right so i think there was some element of knowledge of the past sure. that this is a very hot tropical country which has a long dry season where the sun is really cruel to the traveler and remember that till the 1920s the traveler was either walking or using animal locomotion yes. they needed shade mm. yes this is why you will find even along the grand trunk road the trees which are planted are large shade giving trees whereas Correct. today if you look at national highway authority of india without being over critical of them they don't want very large trees they want trees only of a certain size <laughs> so the human aesthetics was not always negative and i mm. think that all of us would recall that uh, it was possible in much of say the old uh, princely state of mysore very important modernizing state mysore built very good road network they had lot of trees in fact i am struck uh, you know pradeep saab referred to this uh, tamarind they mint tamarind is very popular Correct. there but it's a very good tree to plant it gives very deep shade right. so if you traveled on those roads in 70s 80s you would find people asleep under the tamarind tree 
Right. After all, the tree has multiple <laughs> uses. Yeah. Godgill and Malhotra had done studies in 70s. What are the uses of trees in an urban space? Short of cutting it. They found 43 uses. There were 43 categories of people <laughs> using the tree. You know, someone set up a shop. Someone set up uh, a stall. Someone slept under the tree. Someone brought a baby under the tree. So the tree is very much part of the landscape. Of course, humans have played a role. But there was some element of logic in the selection of trees. Even where... We may disagree with which tree they chose. There was a lot of thought given to it. Right. And I think that one of the, uh, <laughs> the points we must make about the earlier rulers, and I will say right into the 18th century, this planting of groves and planting of these avenue trees mm. actually did have a certain logic. Remember, at that time, they didn't have the easy possibility of watering these What's plants. What's the logic of building gardens, Mahesh? A garden partly shows the rulers' uh, civilizing of a landscape. You know, if you look at the Mughals or the Timurids, because Mughals is not a term they use for themselves. They saw themselves as the descendants of the great Taimur. Babur, when he comes to India, one of the first things he does is to lay a garden. In fact, the garden laid by Babur in Kabul was restored with help from government of India. It oh. was visited by uh, Indian Prime Minister Mrs. Gandhi, I think, when she visited in 74. Oh. It was in a dilapidated state. And then under Taliban, they desecrated the garden. It has been restored recently. Oh. So the garden for those rulers was a, uh, like a, a paradise, a paradise. That is why it had running water. It did not have lawns. This lawns is British, this right. green lawn, which right. sucks a lot Rolling of water. Lawns. But it yeah. had a lot of different type of shrubs and flowers. And the recent restoration work uh, done in the Humayun's tomb has tried, not always successfully, to restore some of that kind of garden. So there are different kind of gardens and the garden is a place of leisure and pleasure, but it's also a place of learning. There are certain gardens for medicinal plants. There are certain gardens where only women go. There are certain gardens, traditionally, after all, where only Brahmins could go. Remember, it also included exclusion, inclusion. Right. So I think the garden, as much as the monument or the constructed space, is a place of human creativity. Oh, and uh, oh. history of gardens, you know, there's very interesting work being done now by a uh, scholar on uh, Tipu Sultan's gardens. And oh. Tipu Sultan was a person with a lot of inquiring spirit. He ordered 40 chests of seeds to be brought from Mauritius, from his oh. French allies. So along with the guns, he was getting different trees and the Kaban Park. So they are more in the nature of botanical gardens. I mean, they are, they are curiosity. I mean, they, yeah, sure. It could be curiosity. It could be embellishment, it could be leisure, it could be also a gathering of different kind of plants to show the richness of it the could king. Could be some kind of a laboratory where stuff is happening. Yeah, very mm -hmm. much so. Mm -hmm. And you should also remember many of the Indian religious places, temples, for example, or the Buddhist viharas also had gardens around them. Yeah, there's remarkable work by uh, historian Aloka Parashar Sen on the Buddhist notions of the garden in the Deccan, where she argues that the garden is a space between the city and the forest. Right. It has. It is encompassing this. It, it is part of the city, but it's midway between the city and the forest. I and think kind this of a is cusp a, zone. It's a it's continuum. A, yeah, now, that's yes. an interesting idea to it's play. It's a very interesting idea. And I think without it, the predators, without the without the wild beasts, maybe they may come in. But mm. yes, I think we should uh, also, when we think of this wild tame, mm. rather than use them as sharp categories, today's mm. world, we should it's think continuous. of continuums. We mm. are living in, in a spaces of different kinds of continuum. Right. And I think that may give us much more space to maneuver. Otherwise, you will feel driven to the wall. If you look at the amount of uh, pristine forest left in India, it's tiny. You look at wetland left in India, it's tiny. <laughs> you know, it's, but it's actually not like that. Right. This large space can have different kinds of continuum. 
the garden or the rewilded space is part of the continuum. You can change the continuum. If you were to look at it that way, I think we have much more space to play with than uh, many other countries. And when we think of rewilding, you obviously think of a lot more than plants, right, Pradeep? I mean, do you do you do you consciously think of bringing the bees in, bringing the butterflies in, bringing the birds in, or it kind of happens by the way along the way, so long as you take care of something? What what is the sequence in which you would go about things? I'm not trying to um, algorithmize it beyond a point, but see, in a, in an ideal world, you'd be rewilding very large tracts of land, like they're doing in parts of Europe today. Right. Rewilding has become a movement uh, right. in Europe. The rewild, the kind of rewilding I've done has happened to just be in very tiny pockets of land. Yeah. And in a place like Jodhpur, where I've done, where I've been working for the last eleven years. Yeah. It really is a tiny little island in the middle of a city. Yeah. So the only creatures that can actually find this land are creatures that can fly. That's so you are true. Really you just can't talking walk about your butterflies way. and moths and birds. You're not talking about, you know. <laughs> you most won't suddenly other find mammals. and spot an elephant there. You're yeah. unlikely to spot an elephant there. Yes. Yeah. But, but you know, the, 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 my reasons for rewilding this land were primarily practical rather than, you know, ideological. Sure. It just seemed to be the best way to treat an extremely stressed ecology in a way that would not require huge amounts of investment of time and energy and resources in trying to maintain a garden that was actually antithetical to the natural ecology of this place. Uh, and how, how, do you, how do you test that, Pradeep? How do you know that this is degraded and now it's not? No, I'm not saying it's necessarily degraded. It's just stress. So, I mean, water stress and heat stress, you know, are uh, essential parts of a desert ecology. You know, yep. if you were to try and do a garden in a desert, uh, you wouldn't want to be walking uphill by planting things that require, you know, huge... Loads of water. So, yeah. basically, if you are using local plants, you know that by definition, these plants have evolved to be perfectly adapted to those conditions, to the yes. water regime, to the, you know... Most of them are using photosynthetic pathways that actually are work most efficiently at night because that's essential to a desert plant. That's beautiful. In various mm. other ways, they are actually perfectly adapted to those conditions. So to plant them just makes perfect sense. Right. And to plant something that is going to struggle in that environment either needs... It's like bringing a polar bear to a zoo in Delhi oh, and then having to provide a large fridge to contain the polar bear. Right. doesn't make sense. Right. See? So that's right. essentially right. what I'm saying. And are there, are there remarkable ways in which plants or animals, animal species, not necessarily the um, large mammals... I mean. Do they adapt in very, very significant ways um, when they might be brought in as alien species or otherwise? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think that their adaptability is as uh, plastic as plants are. Mm. Uh, animals have a certain sort of a constraint. And I, I gave a very good example of the polar bear. Right. So... Uh, for animals, I think uh, across zoos, across the world, I don't think they know sort of uh, ship uh, very different sort of animals that, you know, find it very difficult to sort of uh, adapt to the local environment. But in the case of plants, surely the plasticity is much better than the case of the animal. The sheer survival in animal takes a toll on them to sort of move into very alien sort of uh, zoo-like systems. And purely as ecological frameworks, would you say, how, how would you distinguish the garden from the jungle or the garden from the forest? Is there a way for you to 
look at it from the outside without knowing whether something is a garden or a jungle and say what it is. Not 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 that the border matters. We I totally understand what Mahesh is saying. Yeah. It it's and and the label is totally stupid. It doesn't make sense in many ways. But true, my question true. is purely at the level of ecology. Is there something very distinct about what a garden is relative to relative to? Forest? Yeah. From an ecological dynamics point of view, I would say finally when you look at an ecosystem, it's not individuals that matter. It's the network. That has that has stabilized over evolutionary time, and so when you look at a jungle or a forest system, you have this jigsaw puzzle solved by the elements of that ecosystem, uh, by you know uh, hundreds and thousands and millions of years, and right. that we you know as ecologists call as a stable system or whatever. Yeah. But then when you sort of uh, ramshackle it and sort of take a part of it and put it into a garden outside of it, you are now actually doing uh, what we may call as, you're now disequilibrating the entire system. And so until that system works itself into some sort of a cozy network amongst itself, it's still going to be an artifact of the original forest. Oh. So from an outside, uh, let's say if I used a, 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 a lens or a currency to now ask, how is it different? We can tell uh, through certain ecological sort of parameters whether some uh, patch of green is in fact stable or not stable. Mm -hmm. There are parameters that one could measure. Such as? Such as, let us look at the sort of uh, uh, age uh, distribution, age class distribution of the uh, individual members of that uh, community versus uh, otherwise. The stability of that uh, ecosystem across uh, time uh, between the two is going to be very different. And a whole bunch of other sort of networks that one can do. In fact, today people do a fancy analysis called network analysis of how communities link, how elements within the communities link with each other and try to look at are there any missing uh, links in the chain between those communities, between something that is in the forest and versus something that is outside of the forest. Right. So to that extent, a garden is certainly not a forest unless and until the garden has stabilized over a long period of time, which has several problems uh, in its way. A is... A, to be stable, a garden has to be necessarily populated by certain numbers of each of the species that are there in that. It's never going to be happening because a garden as by definition is... So technically a garden in the middle of city, if you take the human beings out who might be tending to it, is likely to collapse? Is, is that what you're saying? Uh, okay. The garden may collapse... Mm. Uh, in the sense that we now look at the garden as a garden. Mm. But elements in the garden will work out themselves in a manner Some kind that of is, going to reshape, would, yeah. is going to reshape in a manner that you have not intended it in the beginning of when you establish the garden. Yeah. So it's like saying that you allow them and allow it to the forces of nature and natural selection would operate on them and recast itself in a manner which might be entirely different from what you as an outside force sort of stabilized it. So Pradeep, can you let your 70 hectares of land just be? Does it take care of itself? It does take care of itself. But let me also say this, that, you know, I don't think that we understand enough about what makes this patch of land tick. Mm. We are acutely aware, for example, that there are fungal mycorrhizal associations in the soil, underground, unseen, hidden, right. that operate in ways that we don't fully understand yet. Right. We, we've only just discovered mycorrhizae right. in the last 20 or 30 years, you know? Right. Um, so there's a lot that we don't know ecologically and how it works. 
Um, at the same time, let me just say this also that with forests, we, you know, I, I spent three years traveling through central India to right. write my book um, on the jungle trees of central India. Yeah. And I was struck by how much of what we saw was actually a plantation and not a natural forest. So we've actually... That's a great we, point. We've yeah. actually replaced vast tracts of natural wilderness with plantation forests, you know? Yeah, yeah. And what you get really are very... Does that worry you? Is that... Is oh, that... it's very worrying. It's very worrying because these are, in some cases, sterile environments, you know? They're, 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 um, they're much worse than gardens in some ways, you know? Right. And this was the... You see the... Which the, look see, like ger- forests, but they're not. <laughs> you see, German foresters were brought in in the middle of the 19th century to manage mm. our forests and to teach the British Forest Department, mm. how to practice scientific forestry because the British did not have a tradition or any, uh, you know, any, any schools to teach scientific forestry. The French did and the uh, Germans did and you wouldn't catch the British asking a Frenchman for help. They, were, they, <laughs> they turned to the British. But the Germans have done a good job with their forests. See, the German idea of a forest is basically an even-aged forest yeah. of only a few species that are regarded as being important, of yeah. economic importance, yeah. which are then harvested in, you know, rotation. In, yeah, that is yeah. their idea of a high forest, of an ideal yeah. forest. Yeah. And it's an ideal that has actually done enormous harm to our forests. It's the way they manage their forests, but their forests are very, very far from being a natural forest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you, I would never use the word jungle for a German forest. <laughs> right. You know, not even in a... They're managed wilderness, which, or whatever. They're plantations. They're, not even wilderness. they're, plantations. they're like... They're yeah. like they're plantations. Almost. Absolutely. They're, they're almost plantations, like plantations. Yes. Can it's jungles very, collapse, uh, Mahesh? That's a very important point. Yes. In fact, uh, if you look at the last hundred years, there is a regrowth of the forest mm. in much of Europe and North America. Yeah. As these societies have progressively industrialized, Yes. agriculture occupies a smaller part of the workforce, 3%, 2%. Yeah. And many areas with government subsidies have become forest. But these are largely plantation forests. So we're taking the ideas of agriculture to forests. Not, more than that, in fact, when we use the term forest, we must include the complex of life forms. So the American forest of today has huge numbers of white-tailed deer because the predators have been eliminated. <laughs> Many of these European forests, the predators are only now coming back. This is in the 21st century. They've eliminated by the 1940s. The last wolves in Western Europe were gone. Now they are slowly, slowly coming back. So we must keep in mind, even in India, look at two very interesting areas. I'm hesitant to use the word wilderness. Let me call them natural areas, large protected zones. Sure. The Gir Forest, largest natural forest in Gujarat. Sure. Very important, last stronghold of the lion and the leopard. Sure. Look at two species or three which have become extinct there over the last hundred years. They're very interesting species. The cheetah, with, which was shot out sometime in the early 20th century. There were black buck in gear till into the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And till the 40s and 50s, there was a very important bird, the grey hornbill. Now, they died out for a variety of reasons, largely driven by humans. They were mm. exterminated, killed, whatever. Similarly, look at Sundarbans. Vast area of mangrove, largest mm. mangrove forest in the world. Very famous habitat of the Bengal tiger in India and Bangladesh. 200 years ago, Sundarbans was part of a continuum including Salt Lake City of... Uh, Salt Lake of uh, Kolkata. <laughs> very famous now for software center. Salt Lake, if you look at the old maps of Renel, is a grassland which would have had wild buffaloes. Huge wild buffaloes which were part of the prey base of the tiger. The Sundarbans itself, where there was sweet water, had the swamp deer, the Javan rhino, Possibly the hog deer. These are all extinct. Today, Sundarbans has cheetal, 
wild boar and tigers. So these are very stressed ecological systems. And remember, these species which were found, the animal species were playing a role in the interactions with the plants. Absolutely. It's a fascinating work uh, done in Nepal by an American scientist called Dinerstein, in which he found, you see, the rhinoceros actually plays an important role. It uh, takes a certain tree seeds through its gut and it spreads them across the riverine landscape. Right. This means where the rhino has been eliminated over the last 170 years, those tree species are not being spread out over areas. Right. So I come back. We need these living laboratories to study what nature was about, what nature is about. The most important reason for preservation is not so that future generations can see a tiger. They can see it in a museum, they can see it in the zoo, and you know what? Everybody will now have access to animal planet, even on their <laughs> mobile phone. But if you want to see the systems in operation, from the microbes and the fungi to the biggest animal and the tree and the uh, flowers and the fruits, we need to have some places where they are intact. Rennie Borges did fascinating work in Bhima Shankar. I think it's one of the most fascinating papers I've ever read, where she shows, you know, Bhima Shankar is an area which is protected. Sacred grove, sanctuary, very good for giant squirrels. Ecology of Bhima Shankar, she found, has changed a lot because people correct dry twigs. The twigs are used to train tomato vines. You know, the tomatoes you eat, they are grow on vines. Those dry twigs were very important for certain insects for their breeding cycle. That oh. is, they laid their eggs, the pupae and larvae were in it. Oh. Those two, three species were crucial for pollination. Oh. Now, without knowing it, by taking the twigs away, you have snapped a link in the system. Now, you can't protect huge parts of India. Not going to be possible. But we need certain areas where we have these laboratories. We can have much larger areas where we can do rewilding and continuum. And these should be studied. These are these are natural systems in operation and interaction with humans from which we can learn. It's like you learn from a painting or piece of music or sculpture. It's a living history. It's a living landscape. The landscape is alive. Oh, absolutely. And this is, I think, something very deep which we need to imbibe. It is not just a basket of resources, timber, sand, so much of stone, you know, here is a river <laughs> to be uh, damped. This is a living good. landscape. It's throbbing. It's a pulsating, vibrating landscape of life. And India is a remarkable country for the amount of life forms that coexist with such a large number of people. We've managed it somehow. Hit and miss. But now hit and miss won't work. We need to put in very serious thinking. So why don't effort. we spend the last two, three minutes thinking about this? How does one ensure and you know um, that there are some of these ecological forests um, existing after 200 years, 300 years, 500 years, 1,000 years. Because, I mean, some of what you're saying is highly knowledge-intensive. I mean, Rennie Burgess has had to do that work to figure out these linkages, some of these... And uh, so what's the future? What's the future of jungles? What's the, what's the future of forests? They have a future if we would like them to have a future and we behave in a manner where we build in... Uh, uh, some uh, basic science-based principles. Is there a risk of carrying our principles and ideologies and philosophy, philosophies of agriculture into the way we look at forests? Like, no, that risk is always there with all landscape, with forests, with wetlands. But I think in India, we have the level of knowledge and the expertise and the competence and the democratic structures to do this in an equitable and sensible way. It's not rocket science. Sure. You have certain ecological safety zones. You could start with your protected areas and certain other critical zones where you try to have a very high degree of protection. You have other areas where you bring, you don't have that higher level of protection. You have human presence. Sure. But if you were to go with ecological security and integrity as principle one, livelihood as two, and have extreme 
you know, intensive resource extraction only in certain areas where you also repair and restore the land and waterscape. Right. I think I want to emphasize the restore and repair very strongly. This is a tropical environment which is volatile. It cannot be entirely extractive. It should not be and we are all aware that across India today, there is not a single place which has 24-hour drinking water supply, even yeah. in zones of high rainfall. Yeah. It's because of a breakdown of the system. Yeah. We are also aware that uh, soil erosion is yeah. a serious issue. So, keep the living landscape as the larger perspective and sure. certain critical zones. That's beautiful. What's the future, Uma? Um, uh, Mahesh gave a very interesting point. Uh, I also believe that uh, if we want to now maintain uh, sort of uh, jungles and uh, in some way sort of uh, not just restore... And jungles that don't turn sterile. Absolutely. They, jungles which that don't, don't look like jungles. You have green cover, but they know they're not really jungles. Absolutely. What I'm saying is he used the word pulsating. Yeah. I think we need pulsating jungles, that which are living not static sort of arboretum that are there with standing trees, those which talk to each other, both above ground and below ground and so on and so beautiful. forth. Mm. I think it's very important to look at at it as, as something very similar to what uh, we knew was existing, you know, a few hundreds and thousands of years back. Mm-hmm. Now, and of course, that's a hugely, uh, it's a task that we, it's a very daunting task uh, thanks to this Anthropocene in which we are living. Sure. So my take on that would be to see how far... But can the clock be turned? Should it be turned? Sorry? Can the clock be turned? Uh, Well, I would say yes. I I am optimistic on that. That, for example, let me just give a quick word on the protected areas that he mentioned. Yeah. We've been working on some protected areas and we show that the protected areas in the Western Ghats that, that, that we have been working on are actually refugia that if we now keep them alive as they are today, they will speak all languages that we have now just spoken about, that they are pulsating genetically, they are pulsating community-wise. And there's proof of principle that if you now keep these guys alive, these areas alive, as it is inviolate and not extractive at all, you can have, you know... They can uh, be seeds for the future. Absolutely. They can be cradle for the future. That's beautiful. What's the future, uh, Pradeep? Last word. I agree with everything that um, Mahesh and Uma are saying. Mahesh and Uma have said. What do you disagree said. with? No, I don't disagree. I, 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 I see the the political will as being completely absent across the board. It all political, the whole spectrum. You know. Do do the jungles and, 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 need and political see, will? Can they take care of themselves? No, they can't. And and I also see that the the. Gatekeepers, you know, the the people who look after our uh, jungles, which is the forest department, is very, very ill-equipped to do the job. So until we can find a way of injecting political will, finding the political will, and replacing the forest department as the uh, agency that looks after the... Do do the forests need the forest department? I think they need something. They don't need need the forest department as it's presently set up. Thanks. That's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.